From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 111. I am flying solo today, and we are actually going to be tackling a very big topic, the principles of power development. Um, this is something that can go in a lot of different directions, so I've had to organize my thoughts prior to starting this, um, but I think you're going to find that it actually gives you a really good framework uh, through which you attack you know, both short and long-term athletic development. And, you know, basically try to find these windows of adaptations with our athletes that actually carry over to baseball performance in a very specific manner. So hopefully when all is said and done, you'll have a little bit more of insights as to how to attack that next program for the athletes that are in front of you. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on the road food options. So if you wanna bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. All right, we are back, and I am going to tackle a very big topic as quickly but thoroughly as I possibly can. Power development in the baseball athlete is a very big nut to crack, and why it's so challenging is because it means a lot of different things on a baseball field. Uh, obviously, 
you know, the, probably the foremost uh, display of power that we think about with baseball athletes is going to be throwing velocity, whether that's position players or pitchers, um, and certainly exit velocity, how hard you hit the ball, um, which is a function of obviously how hard you swing. Um, but I think even building on top of that, it's a little bit more complex because we have sprint and agility measures as well um, in our position players and, you know, to some degree in our pitchers as well. We have infielders that may jump to try to catch line drives. So baseball, uh, while it does have a heavy component of specificity and rotational power, we do have to have some adjustability to account for what happens in the field of play as well. So we're going to try to attack that as best as we possibly can as we work our way through it. Um, and really, I think the, the best place to start um, with this is, is actually with a review that was featured in, in Sports Medicine in 2011. Um, it's Cormie's group, which included Robert Newton, who's a, a well-known researcher in the strength and conditioning realm. And they actually wrote a, a landmark review with respect to power. And they talked about developing maximal neuromuscular power, training considerations for improving maximal power production. And this is something that you can find online. It's free, full text. It's a wonderful read. And what's interesting is this, this was published back in 2011, and I really didn't come across it for several years later. Um, Dr. Newton is, a, like I said, a well-known strength edition researcher, and I was fortunate to work with Dr. William Kramer during my time at UConn, and, and a lot of research realms, their, their names ran really parable, parallel, but for some reason, I just never came across it. So when I stumbled on this one, um, I thought it was fantastic, and, and forgive me, but I'm going to read a, an excerpt from it. They talked about four key principles for power development. And I, again, I apologize for quoting these, but I think it's vitally important that we outline these four measures that really frame our discussion. So first, they said that a fundamental relationship exists between strength and power, which dictates that an individual cannot possess a high level of power without first being relatively strong. Second, consideration of movement pattern, load, and velocity specificity is essential when designing power training programs. Third, they said it's vital to consider the individual athlete's window of adaptation, i.e. the magnitude of potential for improvement for each neuromuscular factor contributing to maximal power production when developing an effective and efficient power training program. A training program that focuses on the least developed factor contributing to maximal power will prompt the greatest neuromuscular adaptations and therefore result in superior performance improvements for that individual. And then fourth, and finally, a key consideration for the long-term development of an athlete's maximal power production capacity is the need for an integration of numerous power training techniques. This integration allows for variation within the power meso and microcycles while still maintaining specificity, which is theorized to lead to the greatest long-term improvement in maximal power. So that's a lot to digest. So let's go through it uh, one component at a time. And then I'll even break it down further after that. So he talks about a fundamental relationship exists between strength and power. You, you can't be powerful unless you're strong. Um, and this is pretty obvious, right? Is, is that you know, power is dependent on, you know, on force and time. And if we don't have force, it doesn't matter how quickly we try to accelerate a weight or a baseball or whatever it may be. That's a limiting factor. Okay. Consideration of movement pattern, load, and velocity specificity is essential when designing power training programs. So 
you know, just because you're a powerful basketball player doesn't mean that you're going to be able to, you know, be an elite thrower. Every, every NBA player that goes and throws out the first pitch at a major league game, we, we never see electric arm speed, right? Um, it's vital to consider the individual athlete's window of adaptation for each neuromuscular factor. Obviously, you train the things that you need the most. If you just do what you're always, you know, really, really good at doing, you get more of what you've always gotten. So we need to identify the least developed factor and attack it. And then last but not least, a key consideration for the long-term development and actually power is the need for an integration of numerous power training techniques, right? There was an old quote from, I think it was Chris Doyle at Iowa, said the best program is the one that you're not on, right? So we, we need to expose athletes to a wide variety of training stimuli um, that take into account their least developed factors and, and then put them where they need to be. Now, where this is really interesting is I, I read this article, I want to say probably 2018 or so. And it actually blew my mind as I went through and, and kind of itemized these individual entities because as I looked back, they were things that I had, all, I had covered in a bunch of my writing over the years. So what's interesting, if you look at the Ultimate Offseason Training Manual, which I actually wrote starting in 2005, in that book, I actually talked about the analogy of a glass being the maximal strength and other qualities being the fluid in the glass. And at the time, my, my largest um, influence had actually been basketball training, work with a lot of these players who had gotten to college and never lifted a weight and they were just freaky reactive. And all we did was get them strong and, and good things happened. They jumped even higher, they got healthier, um, their movement proficiency improved. So what we had with those athletes is we had glasses that were completely full and we made the glasses bigger so that we could pour more of those other qualities in there. With respect to this discussion, they talk about how you can't be powerful unless you're first strong. So if the glass isn't big enough, we need to make it big enough. And if we have a glass that's huge because we're really, really strong, then we need to work on filling it in with other qualities, whether that's you know, specific speed and agility measures, more work for motor control, maybe it's creating muscular endurance in, in athletes and in other sports that may require a, you know, a longer duration component. But We'd written about it, like I said, all the way back in 2005. Now, building on that, the second point was one where we talked about considerations of movement patterns um, and both and loads and velocities as well. So, um, in in that particular consideration, movement patterns were were obviously vital. I use the example of NBA players throwing out the first pitch, but we also have to appreciate load and velocity specificity. You probably need to be a lot stronger to throw a shot put than you do to throw a baseball. The implements are substantially different. You know, but you probably don't need to be as strong for a javelin as you would for a, a shot put, but maybe you need to be a little bit stronger than a baseball. It's all, all dependent on the, the implement in question. But I think the bigger discussion point here is much more about the movement pattern, and, and more specifically, how it impacts the plane of motion that we're working with. And what's cool about this, this particular discussion is I'm actually going to read you something. So um, back when I was writing for T-Nation, every year for, for several years, I would write what I learned in the previous year. So in January of 2011, I submitted my What I Learned in 2010 article. And I said, uh, this is a heading, power and strength is very plain and skill specific. And here's what I, I wrote. We've known for a long time that proprioception and balance are both very skill specific. Back in 1996, Jawatsky and Zaccato found little carryover from static to dynamic balance. Segillis et al. confirmed this 35 years later. What I never bothered to consider is that we looked at the big neural picture. How we stabilize ourselves is no different than how we develop power. You need proprioception to inform the body of what's going on, and you need balancing proficiency, which is highly dependent on strength, to establish stability. 
It's the same exact thing you need to establish power. And if static balance training doesn't carry over to dynamic balance, it stands to reason that a lot of our conventional strength training methods don't carry over as well as we thought to the world of athletics. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to go all functional on you. I am, however, going to make some observations in my frame of reference, which is baseball players. Babe Ruth hit a ton of home runs in spite of being seemingly out of shape, and I've seen more than a dozen pitchers throw well over 90 miles per hour without even being able to vertical jump 23 inches. What gives? Well, these athletes are just incredibly efficient and powerful in the transverse and frontal planes. Would being an elite sprinter make one a successful hitter or pitcher? Of course not, yet both, most strength and conditioning coaches train their rotational sport athletes as if they were trying to elevate them to an elite status in a sagittal plane dominant sport. They assume that general exercises like squats, deadlifts, and Olympic lifts will simply carry over once an athlete starts throwing or hitting. And to some degree, they do carry over because of the involved structures and systemic training effect, but I think there's a way to tighten up the learning loop. People think I'm crazy when I say that we don't Olympic lift our baseball players. We also don't do a ton of vertical jumping. At the end of the day, jumping high doesn't really matter that much for our pitchers and hitters. Maybe it does in the context of, of how they run and change direction, but rotating and moving laterally quickly does. So we focus on power-oriented work on rotational medicine ball drills, lots of laterally directed jumping and landing, and supplement it with lifting and sprinting. Now, that article was published, like I said, in January of 2011. And on March 1st, 2011, I got an email from a gentleman named Graham Lehman, who, who is a, a researcher up in Canada um, as part of David Bem's group, who's put out some really, really good stuff in the, in the stability and balance realm. And he said, Eric, I wanted to give you a quick thanks for all the baseball-related strength conditioning work you've done over the years. Your work has in part inspired me to perform my master's thesis on the correlation of various lower body power tests and throwing velocity. I wanted to comment on your 10 things I've learned in 2010 article where you mentioned how power is plain specific, which is funny because of all the lower body tests I performed, the only one that accurately predicted throwing velocity was a lateral jump in the frontal plane. I had my subjects, collegiate level, perform all sorts of lower body power tests such as the vertical jump, horizontal jumps, both multiple and unilateral, sprinting, 20 and 60 yard, and med ball throws for distance. The lateral jumps were performed with the athlete standing one leg medially in the frontal plane to a two foot landing. Both dominant and non-dominant legs showed significance. I'm in the process of writing the thesis, but I thought you might like this sneak peek of research information, which just goes to show that the research is always proving what industry leaders are already doing. So this was a very compelling uh, you know, kind of narrative, and it was published in the Journal of Strength Editioning in, uh, in uh, April of 2013, and it's something that's really governed a lot of our work over the past several years with how we train our throwers and how we attack our medicine ball work, and, and now even more modernly, what we do uh, with respect to Proteus, um, some of the stuff we've done, the Versapulli, more eccentric oriented, all these different initiatives that have allowed us to be more successful as you know, more and more technologies become available and you know, the, the tools in our, our fingertips are even better. So um, velocity is definitely plane specific. And then the third point was this, this concept of window of adaptation. Train the qualities that are the most trainable. In August of 2010, I put out a video called the Absolute Speed to Absolute Strength Continuum, which basically just said that we have this, this continuum over which we need to develop folks. And if you look at this in the, in the example of an elite sprinter, at the absolute speed end of the continuum, you have things like sprinting and plyos, things that are done with body weight. And you could even shift a little bit further there if you did things like band-assisted jumping and stuff like that that makes them actually be perceived a little bit lighter. But at the other end of the spectrum, we have this absolute strength end of the continuum, which would be squatting, deadlifting, very heavy weights with slower movement speeds. 
And what we realized is we can kind of fill in the gaps on this. So like speed strength far to the left of the continuum towards absolute speed would be like jump squats um, or maybe slightly loaded plyos, box jumps where we're holding light dumbbells. Um, and then we have the strength speed end of the continuum, which, which shifts us a little bit further to the right towards absolute strength. And that's where you know things like Olympic lifts or really heavy medicine ball throws could all play into you know, what we're doing uh, with our sprinters. Now, if we take that and we apply it to, to pitching, you know, working left to right from absolute speed to absolute strength, you have you know, certainly under load balls, you have five ounce baseballs, you have sprinting, jumping with just body weight. And then as you start to go to speed strength, you look at things like working with weighted balls. And as you get a little bit closer to strength speed, you see medicine ball work. Maybe now that we have Proteus, we can load folks a little bit more in, in the plane of motions that, that matter. So Proteus gives us an option between strength speed and absolute strength, where you know on the absolute strength side of things, it's more traditional strength and conditioning. So we've learned how to attack this across the continuum for pitchers, and, and we can do it with hitting as well, right? Absolute speed is gonna be hitting. You know, If you wanna shift it even further in that direction, some of the underload bats are options. And as we start to shift further to the right towards absolute strength, we have overload bats, we have medicine balls, and then we have you know, purely strength training. And what's cool about this is we can layer things and we can actually start to appreciate what people do well as we have force plates, we have things like Proteus. We can actually start to appreciate maybe where they are on the continuum and, and find if we have an athlete that, that's strong but slow and we need to spend more time on the speed end of the continuum or we have an athlete that's fast but weak and we need to spend more time on the absolute strength side of the continuum. And then optimally, I think we get an athlete who's, who's relatively well balanced and then we can make use of a lot of different training initiatives. And then finally, we have this discussion of integrating numerous power training techniques to allow for variation within the mesocycle and the microcycles. And this is something we've really heavily emphasized alongside our medicine ball teachings. Um, you really just can't keep adding, right? As the off season goes on and we're attacking medicine ball work really aggressively, um, you know, as guys start to ramp up and hit much more in late November into December and then, you know, potentially start seeing live and having more random practice, things like that. Um, as January rolls around, you just can't keep adding. So we need to pull back on our medicine ball stuff as, as guys are swinging and throwing a lot more. Um, and in 2016, I actually put out a, a video blog called Specificity, Delayed Transmutation and Long-Term Baseball Development. It, it focused on this concept of using the early and mid-off season to to build these general motor qualities that eventually could be translated over into more specific uh, you know, performance initiatives as we can participate in our sport more often. And, and then certainly we try to find exercises that deliver the absolute best carryover um, as the off season uh, continues. So obviously I just laid out a lot of different things, but in short, I was you know, covering all these factors and we were seeing results over the years, but it wasn't until I reread this you know, 2011 review that I realized that you know, basically Cormie's group had, had laid it all out for us neat and pretty and it's created a framework uh, upon which we can base a lot of our programming and you know, how we individualize for our athletes. Um, so with that said, I, I do think it's important that we, we, we take a step back and look at some of the more practical applications, maybe some of the places where these things um, are, are mismanaged or overlooked in, in today's baseball training realm. Um, and so the first one, you know, obviously you have to be strong, but I would argue that you don't need to be absurdly strong. Um, there's clearly a point of diminishing returns on training for maximal strength where you're better off adding more fluid to the glass instead of just trying to make the glass bigger. 
especially because it's it's insanely easy to preserve maximal strength. You know, we have more and more evidence to suggest that maximal strength will stick around. It can be trained as little as you know, every 30 days and you're probably just gonna hang on to it. Um, you know, I, I know this from my old my own powerlifting career. I haven't competed since 2007. I've just kind of continued to, to lift heavy. And you know, as I've had kids, I had knee surgery last year, I, I've trained really, really heavy less frequently, but I've maintained my, stop, my top end strength pretty easily having one or two heavy sessions a month. So I think we can, we can certainly appreciate that with our athletes. And, and I saw it even more heavily with our big league athletes last year. It was a, a shortened 60 game season. And a lot of these athletes, it was, you know, it was a little bit of a race. So I wouldn't say guys trained quite as hard last season, knowing the season was quite as short and they had had more off season, but they came back much, much stronger in the fall of 2020. So there was something to be said for, you know, doing less and, and still holding on to it just as well. Um, the other thing I would I would tell you is that you know there's always a cost to really pushing heavy loading, right? There's always the risk of, of getting hurt in training, but I also do think that you know well well I don't think just getting big and bulky is the reason some athletes move moves, lose movement competencies. Um, I, I will say that there are certainly athletes that transiently lose range of motion where you take someone who's got limited hip internal rotation and poor shoulder flexion, and then you have them go over and pull 500 for five on a trap bar. When you come back, you're probably going to see a reduction in, in, in some of those range of motion numbers even further. So our training programs need to make sure we offset the heavy loading. Um, I think this is something that gets layered even more um, when, when folks do it, you know, to great degrees. Um, and, and I've been, you know, somewhat critical in a, in a respectful way of, of where we often see a lot of athletes go off to college strength conditioning programs where they're very undertrained. They're throwing 86 to 88. They get substantially stronger in bilateral exercise. The velocity jumps and they're 92 to 93 and they've put on 25 pounds and, you know, they feel like they're on top of the world. And what we often see, though, is that they, they actually get steadily worse from, from you know, sophomore and junior year on. It's because they keep doing the same things. They don't explore other aspects of, of power training techniques. They don't find those windows of adaptation. They don't challenge different planes of motion. They get better largely because they, they added body weight and because they, they built a foundation of strength to make the glass a little bit bigger to capitalize on what they already had. Um, this is where we've had a lot of success with our you know our athletes that come to train with us in the college realm in the summertime and also professional athletes that we get after they've been drafted is sometimes just attacking, attacking some of those different proficiencies while taking a little bit of a step back from classic bilateral maximal strength training makes them substantially better and in many cases you know improves range of motion enhances rotational capacity so um you know you, the the case in point is just that you need to be strong but not absurdly strong and don't be married to just lifting really really heavy stuff to get better there's a place for it it's important it's certainly important for position players who want to run fast jump high um but if we're talking about rotational proficiencies we need to be mindful of that there there may be a little bit of a, a competing demand there as well Building on this concept of movement pattern specificity, you have to ask, do you put up huge bilateral sagittal plane power numbers and then struggle in terms of rotational power? Are you that 500 pound squatter that runs fast but can't throw a baseball hard or hit a baseball hard? Um, you know, we have to appreciate the specificity of, of, of plane usage is, is huge. And this kind of parallels the discussion that I have with a lot of pitchers nowadays. You know, if we look at this weighted ball world, 
you know, everyone knows that you make your, your money with the five ounce ball. Um, nobody throws a squishy weighted ball with no seams in a game, but we see a lot of programs that are, you know, 60, 70, 80% just done with those balls. And it, it's not a specific environment. So uh, I'm not saying those things don't have their place. We certainly use them. And, and I think they're vitally important for a lot of athletes development, but we have to appreciate this concept of specificity. It applies not just to the implements we use, but it applies to the, the planes of motion in which we work. Um, and then, you know, on point number four, you know, have, have you defined where you exist on the absolute speed to absolute strength continuum? So using myself as an example, I, I've competed a power lifter and, and lifted really, really heavy for an extended period of time. I, I probably get out and sprint once a week. I'll throw the med ball some, you know, on top of just a little bit of the plyometric stuff that I do demonstrating for athletes and all that during the week. If I want to go out and become an elite baseball player, I need to step away from just lifting heavy stuff all the time. Clearly, I'm not proficient rotationally, and I'm certainly not proficient enough on the absolute speed end of the continuum, right? So I would need to sell out for the dream by getting all the way to the other end of, of the continuum. Now, that leads to the question, are you prepared to attack your deficiency, or do you need considerable preparation? So using me as an example, and, and if you've followed any of Keith Barr's research on tendon health, which I think is outstanding, um, we know that strong athletes who lack good stiffness in the tendon are at higher risk for tendon injuries. So this is me, right? I, I'm, I'm very strong. I have muscular strength relative to my body weight, but what I don't have is that good super stiffness of the tendon. So I can go out and try to do depth jumps and aggressive sprint training and change the directions three or four days a week, and I'm probably going to blow an Achilles. At the other end of the spectrum, we have athletes who kind of have that super stiffness of their tendons that makes them very springy, but they may lack the muscular strength that they need to support it. And those are the individuals that are, that are often at risk of more muscular injuries. Um, they, they can't necessarily attack the strength speed aspect of the continuum too fast without first building up some, some higher level eccentric strength. Um, and, and certainly last but not least, you have to ask, is there a give and take throughout your training calendar, right? What I can tell you about professional baseball players is there's, there's an ebb and a flow to it. Um, you know, by the end of a major league season, particularly if they're on a, a team that's not particularly good, most of them don't want to look at a baseball for an extended period of time, right? You play 200 games in 230 days or whatever it winds up being. And the last thing they want to do is go out and aggressively throw. Sure, some of them maybe may play catch just because they feel like they need to keep it moving and it helps them, but nobody's exhilarated to go out and long toss 300 feet. Nobody wants to sprint full tilt. Nobody really wants to attack even rotational med ball stuff. There's a little bit of a, a lull in terms of how much they attack high velocity movements. Um, you know, some of it, you know, this, this give and take that we need throughout the training calendar, as I'm, I'm noting here, comes because of the inherent fluctuations in competition over the baseball calendar, right? Um, but there should still be an overall plan for how you cycle in and out of particular initiatives. So using the example of, of a minor league baseball player, say, who finishes their, their season the first week in September, typically there's a, you know, a week off or so while they're moving, getting their feet underneath them with, with wherever they're relocating to. Maybe they're getting checked out if they're banged up from the season and working in that direction. And, and usually I like to get them started back up with um, you know, just a little bit of work capacity work on, on the aerobic base side of things. Some of them, if they're feeling good, will go through some low-key deceleration progressions. But more importantly is, is, is working to establish a foundational link, uh, level of strength. 
there's there's some very low-hanging fruit that we can pick with these athletes who haven't been able to lift frequently um, enough during the season. So those athletes get back in the gym and we can chase maximal strength really, really easily, even without pushing super heavy loading. So that we, we use kind of mid-September um, through, you know, early to mid-November as, you know, two really good months where we can get some easy strength gains and, you know, really November, um, you know, through to early December, we can attack some, some heavy loading. So if you walk into our facilities, you're going to see guys moving some really big weights, um, you know, kind of around Thanksgiving into that timeline. But concurrently with it, as, as maximal strength work, you know, is being prioritized, we're also shifting in, we're throwing the med ball more. Um, and usually around Thanksgiving is when you start to see throwing programs ramp up a little bit more. So we've had two good months of really attacking kind of like pure absolute strength, um, you know, the, the strength speed end of the continuum. And then we start to see a little bit more of a shift where, you know, the weighted balls are coming out a lot more in, in mid-December. There's kind of this transition towards a little bit more speed strength. We're attacking Proteus, so, you know, hard so that we can hit it along different parts of the continuum. And then certainly, you know, January rolls around and, and athletes are getting more aggressive with their bullpens and throwing the five-ounce ball and really attacking aggressive pull-downs. So there's, there's kind of this gradual shift over the course of an offseason from absolute strength down to absolute speed. And, and what we're mindful of, and the research has supported this over the years, is we don't want to just do a linear periodization model where we completely detrain certain qualities while we tack others. But it's really just an ebb and a flow where, you know, they don't need to lift quite as heavy at certain times. They don't need to train power quite as hard at other times. And it gives us this opportunity to, to create this overall plan for how we cycle in and out of different uh, particular initiatives. Um, maximal strength for most athletes should be chased in the early to mid off season, whereas it should be preserved while other qualities are, are developed at, you know, at other points in the year. So this is something that, you know, I think all really good in-season strength coaches have intuitively appreciated that, you know, their job is to take the step back as a strength addition coach while baseball is being played. And then they, they, they certainly play a much more prominent role, particularly early mid off season as we're starting to, you know, kind of build that glass a little bit bigger and, and figure out which qualities we need to use to, to fill it in. So um, certainly went in a lot of different directions here. And, and, you know, what's what's nice is we actually have a lot of different resources on this podcast on the previous 110 episodes where you're going to find a lot of these examples of how athletes do this. And I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of our, our veteran big leaders who have gone through different training approaches over the years and, and really describe their approaches on how they attack in offseason, how they attack in-season training. What you're going to find is a lot of them have, have whether it's with, you know, expert guidance or just on their own, they figure out what works well for them. And we've talked to athletes um, who are maybe over the age of 30 who feel like they need to train power more frequently, but they need, you know, to, to, to pull back a little bit on the maximal strength stuff because it, it beats them up a little bit and they just find that they can hold on to that strength a little bit easier. Conversely, we're going to hear from a lot of younger athletes who speak to how much of a, a huge benefit it was for them to get strong during the teenage years because they were able to, to chase uh, more advanced training principles you know, once they were able to get into professional baseball. So hopefully the most important takeaway for this for, for, for athletes is that you need to evaluate, hey, where am I at on this, this maximal, you know, or sorry, absolute speed to absolute strength continuum? Is my glass too small? Do I have a glass that's you know, way too big and needs to be filled up? Have I attacked different planes of motion? You know, and then if I also had periods where I cycled in and out of different power training approaches over the course of the year, and that ranged from, 
jumping, changing directions, sprinting, throwing weighted balls, throwing medicine balls, doing your throwing program, swinging a baseball, bat a ball, different loads. Um, these are all really, really important considerations. And then certainly for the coaches, you know, I think all these, these same considerations are true. But I think we also have to add the extra um, you know, kind of caveat is that you, you can't be emotionally attached to what you love. If you're a powerlifter, don't just train baseball players like powerlifters because it'll work for some of them that are really weak. Um, and it'll probably set a lot of other ones up for six, uh, you know, not so much success. Um, so be mindful of, of separating yourself from your emotional biases. Um, hope you enjoyed this. Um, certainly took a long time to kind of organize my thoughts to wrap my head around it. And hopefully I, I was able to illustrate how individual power development needs to be, um, you know, both in, in amateur and professional baseball players. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.